Who are you? Do you know? Do you have a thoughtful answer that extends beyond your name? If we were, uh, if we were to meet at high school football game some Friday night and, and be introduced and I got your name and then I asked you, so who are you? A uh, little rude is a question, but you might answer with reference to one of the football players. Oh, I'm, I'm Kyle's mom. He's 83. Or uh, I'm, I'm uh, Ashley's dad. She's uh, a cheerleader. Or you might say, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a third grade teacher at school, or I'm a chemist at Abbott, or whatever. You might identify yourself in some context of some relationship. If I were to ask again, but, but who are you? You might say, uh, I don't know what you're asking, or you might laugh, or you might say, well, I'm an American, or I'm, I, I don't know. If I were to ask again, but who are you? you would likely find another place to sit. And here's the deal. I I might keep asking because I still don't have the answer that I'm looking for. And in all fairness, maybe I need to ask a different question. Not who are you, but what are you? I'm trying to to force you to reflect and to think about things at a different level. Are you... uh, complex collection of biochemical reactions or are you a spiritual being worthy of love or are you a sinful creature worthy of being punished or are you something else like what are you it turns out this is a remarkably uh, important question first of all it's it's a very vexing question we've been asking this question for several thousand years and do not agree on the answer. I mean, uh, there's been a lot of navel-gazing and a lot of debate, but there's not an agreed-upon answer to this question, what are we? It's also uh, a significant question in the sense that the answer that we give, what we think about ourselves, what we know to be true about ourselves, or at least what we think to be true about ourselves, pretty significantly affects how we live our life how we define success, how we treat other people, how we understand what's going on. So um, a couple weeks ago, I referenced a book by an Oxford professor, uh, Leslie Stevenson, called The Seven Theories of Human Nature. And uh, he obviously had seven different takes on who we were. I can actually, I can do better than Stevenson. I can get it down to four. I can name that tune in four notes. So three of them uh, occupy points on a triangle. The first category, uh, the first answer is the naturalist. Uh, So there are those who think that we are purely physical beings. they, there are those who would say we are just a stimulus response machine. We are simply matter in motion. We are carbon-based bipeds who occupy temporarily the top part of the evolutionary uh, ladder. Uh, people, they would say, may choose to think that they're more than that. People may choose to believe that they, they have greater value than that. People may choose to say that they have rights, but all that is just tomfoolery. They're, you know, no. This is a closed system. There are no uh, prevailing values. What you see is all you get. We are simply 
naked, soulless, chattering apes. That's it. Second point on the triangle are those who say that we, uh, well, they fall into the idealist camp, and there are those who, who embrace a spiritual view of humanity. So those who opt for this, uh, this point on the triangle, think Plato uh, and others, they don't always agree on uh, what we are besides uh, minds. They, they, they disagree on to what extent the body uh, is neutral or generally a negative influence on who we are. But generally they say what, what matters about us are, is what we think. It's our ideas. Uh, th so they sort of, uh, they sort of think that uh, we are rational beings and that uh, the way forward, the way to the good life is by a, by a purifying of our thoughts or it's salvation by education. Uh, they, they think that we can maybe improve our lot by having a greater awareness uh, of, of who we really are. And then the third point on the triangle is occupied by those who occupy the mystical camp. And um, they sort of think New Age advocates or um, Eastern spiritualists or um, uh, those who sort of fall into some other pantheistic camp. Those in this camp agree with the idealists that what's important about us is not our body, but they disagree, whereas the idealists say it's our mind, the mystical camp would suggest that it's some sort of half-conscious soul and uh, that the way forward for us is to, uh, is to awaken our inner divine nature and find some way to merge with grander cosmic consciousness or something to sort of to be elevated, to be liberated from this world and its confines, but it's not our mind, again, it's not ideas, it's, it is our half-awakened soul. And so this is um, salvation by meditation or by yoga or some path towards enlightenment. Now, uh, in the middle of these three points, there is a fourth camp. And this is the classic Christian understanding of, huma of humanity. It's one that celebrates the body, it celebrates the mind, it celebrates the soul without promoting one over the other or without suggesting that we are in some sense divine. Uh, this perspective, which is first articulated in the book of Genesis, uh, contends that there is, a, uh, there is a God, there is a higher being, there is an all-powerful, wonderful, personal, transcendent, holy creator who made us, made humanity in his image, but we have, through rebellion, we have fallen. The relationship we were created to enjoy with God has been scrambled. We are broken. We are sinful. Uh, and as a result, uh, we are not who we were created to be. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So all of this starts, for Christians, all of this starts from the book of Genesis. So Genesis 1.1 uh, Look at that. i got to go back here. My bad. Genesis 1.1. <laughs> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No doubt you've heard this line before. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It's sort of the foundation. It's the first 
11 chapters are what we call universal history. Really, more specifically, the first three is sort of the, the, the center of everything. Everything grows out of those first few chapters. Genesis 12, uh, following all the, almost all the way to the end of the book, is really the story of the fulfillment of a promise that's made in Genesis 3. And it's, a, it's the story of Abraham and his descendants, the Jews, and how God is going to keep his promise. And the various uh, covenants or arrangements God creates with us. But it all starts in the beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light. So here's what you need to understand. There are, wow, am I compromised today? Here we go. There are uh, seven creative dispensations, orders, days that get, get uh, unfolded here in Genesis. Day one, it's light. Uh, two, atmosphere and land. Three, dry ground. Four, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Five, birds and sea creatures, six animals and humans, and then seven rest. So it's day six that I want us to focus on. So we're jumping to verse 24, so it's day six, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. So all the first, the first five days God creates, and he sees that it's good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, okay, the imago dei, one of the only Latin terms some people know, I guess e pluribus unum and uh, non sequitur. My Latin's pretty limited, but imago Dei in, the, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish uh, of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to the earth, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So this is sort of a commissioning to, uh, to fulfill a creation mandate. Then God said, uh, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit with it, with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and to all the birds of the sky, and to all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breadth of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So we've now, it's, it, mankind has been created. It's now no longer simply good, it's very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So, um... As you've been hearing, we are thinking about renewal, and that starts with uh, identity. So we're thinking about renewal because, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, uh, Romans 
chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and I challenge you to memorize it. I've been carrying around the card. I, uh, I'm conflicted because I memorized it in a different translation than I'm trying to memorize it now, so I really get messed up. But, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind, there's the, there's the word. So we're looking at renewal because this is, a, this is a biblical directive. I said we're also looking at renewal because it's part of our vision. We want to help fuel a movement that reaches people and, that reaches people and renews communities. So the reaching part is outreach, sharing the gospel, talking about Christ, seeing people put their faith in Jesus, hearing about God's love. And then the renewal part is that we are salt and light, we are, we are gonna we are gonna live and love and embrace the, the kingdom values that we're that will one day overrule everything else. And so we're getting a head start on that. And then the third reason I said we we're gonna focus on renewal is because um, many people are looking for a little um, a little newness, uh, a little reboot, a clean start. Uh, there's just a lot of weariness. So we're thinking about renewal this year. It's driven out of these things. And in order to think about how we are renewed, we have to go back to what we're supposed to be to start with. And so we're going back to this whole concept of identity. And I mentioned that identity is sort of a complex topic. For starters, there's lots of different identities that we have. I'm a husband and a father. I'm a pastor. I'm a brother. I'm a son. I'm a... I'm a 60-year-old male, I'm a reader, I'm a you know. So we have lots of different roles that we can play. They have different priorities. And so I was saying, how do we know which of these are the most important, which of these are the most lasting? Um, so I also talked about the complicated ways our culture is changing identity and how identity used to be formed sort of given to us by our community or by our family and now as opposed to sort of self-denial to fit into the community what gets elevated is self-expression and force everybody else to sort of adapt to us um, so all that to say uh, today we we are thinking about one of the four things that God says is most true about us. And so we're looking to have our identity uh, shaped by Scripture. We're looking to have our identity ordered by what God says. So Genesis, many people when they go to the first chapters of Genesis, they're all involved in, in discussions and debates about the science. It's, it's really this profoundly theological uh, set of statements and the implications of the theology of the first chapters of Genesis are not to be underestimated. And so um, we are looking today at this idea expressed, already noted, um, in, on day six. That we are creatures made in the image of God. So I'm, I'm going to give you, over the course of the next few weeks, I'm going I'm to identify four big ideas. So this is the first one. Who am I? Who are you? We are creatures made in the image of God. And I'm, I'm saying two things in this one thing, um, but I want to be sure that, that you get them both. So the first thing I'm noting is that we are 
creatures. So as opposed to being creators, right, we are creatures. Now we can be creative, but our creative abilities are very different than what we read about in Genesis 1, uh, where God is creating. God is creating out of nothing, ex nihilo. Uh, we create starting with something. We manipulate what we're given to create things. We manipulate stuff that God has entrusted to us in order to create other things. That's good. And, and I think that's a very significant thing about us. But let's just note that at the end of the day, and you, full disclosure here, you may not hear a more radical idea this month. You may not hear a more countercultural idea this year than what I am saying right now. I mean, there's a lot of crazy thinking that's going on out there. There's a lot of bizarre ideas that come out of, you know, wherever, Manhattan and, and New York, or Manhattan and New York, Manhattan and Hollywood and Portland, Oregon and Washington, D.C. and faculty lounges and all kinds of Antifa cells or whatever. There's a lot of countercultural ideas out there. You may not hear anything that is as countercultural as what I'm about to tell you, and that is... You are not your own. You and I were created. We are not the top lung of the, ra- of the ladder. We do not belong to ourselves. We don't have ultimate freedom. <laughs> we are owned. God created us. And God retains all rights as the creator. So, um, look, there's lots of people that try and deny this. There's lots of denial right now. But in the end, make no mistake, um, if if we're going to frame this in philosophical terms, ontology trumps autonomy. We may say that we're free and independent. In the end, who we are, our being, our, our ontological reality is more significant than what we say it is. So God has defined. God doesn't have an opinion about who you are. God has a, as a... A, dec- a declarative statement about who we are. And God makes it clear that uh, we are his. We are owned. We are creatures. So, as I said, it's possible you won't hear anything more uh, revolutionary and uh, out of touch with the spirit of the age today than this. But uh, we are dependent. So, when we talk about God, when the Bible develops uh, the, the doctrine of God, as we read through from Genesis to Revelation, and we learn about God, he's revealing himself to us, theologians will break those uh, attributes of God, those uh, descriptors about God. They'll break them down into two camps. The first is what we call his communicable attributes, and the second are what we call his incommunicable attributes. So there's there are, uh, there are things, the communicable ones are, are ones in which we also have those attributes. Like uh, God is loving. We can love. God's love is perfect. Our love is not perfect, right? So, so there's, there's ways in which we can understand we are like God, just an imperfect and very limited aspect of that. But there's another set of God's attributes that fall into the incommunicable camp. And they are, those are ways in which we're completely different than God is. So God, the, the aseity of God speaks to that. God is entirely self-referential. 
God is entirely self-made, self-contained. God is complete in and of himself. We are not. We are dependent, created beings. We did not create ourselves. We did not will ourselves into existence. We might talk about being self-made, but the reality is we're not self-made. God made us. We are creatures. So, because what we think about ourselves is important, because it's important that we get it right, if we're going to have a proper identity that is going to shape how we think and live, it's important that we understand reality. And to start with, Genesis says we were made. We were created by God. So the first thing that ought to shape our identity is an understanding that our, uh, our identity needs to be shaped by the fact that uh, God exists. We are not God. Uh, and so we need to... We need to frame ourselves. We need to think of ourselves in the context that God is God and we are not. God owns us. We are created beings. The second part of my uh, statement here is equally important. We're not just creatures. We are creatures made in the image of God. So, as I noted Genesis uh, 1-1 through 1-20-whatever, 23, there's, there's a number of creative days. And when God created, he saw that it was good. And when God creates uh, humankind, he, he sees that it's very good. And then he, he gives to humanity responsibilities. And, and he makes it clear that day six of creating us, we are altogether different than all the other things that he has created. No other creature was made in God's image. Not the angels, not animals, nothing else. You and I were made in his image. So what exactly does that mean? <laughs> well, Augustine and Aquinas suggested that uh, we were made in God's image, and that ties back to our ability to reason. The Reformers expanded it to include our moral capacity. Emil Bruner linked it to our ability to love. G.K. Chesterton said, The fact that we're made in the image of God is showcased most vividly in our ability to laugh and our ability to draw. Karl Barth grounded uh, our image of Godness in the context of our relationships with each other. Others have tied it into the idea that we're placed in charge of God's creation. Look, here's, uh, I don't know, this is a dirty little secret, but here's, uh, here's a statement. We don't, we don't know what it means to be made in the image of God. Uh, part of the challenge here is that, that sin has broken us. And so we don't know how broken we are. Big debates among theologians in terms of our ability to reason our way forward or how much of how broken we are, how bad we are versus, you know. So we're not perfectly uh, in, in agreement on what it means to be made in the image of God. But um, let's not let um, sort of the 5% the that we can't agree on overshadow the, the basic 95% that we can't agree on. Here's what you need to understand. You are not 
a cosmic accident. You are not simply a, a sack of chemicals. You are, you are not simply the highest of the primates. You have enormous value because you were created in the image of God. And that changes everything. Just as a child of the President of the United States cannot simply be a child, right? You and I, created uh, in the image of God, have inherent value and dignity and worth. So, as I said, I am going to lay out over the course of the next four weeks, I'm going to lay out four big ideas that I believe ought to shape how you think about yourself every day. Right? That these things ought to come first. These things are ultimately true. These things are life-changing. These things are eternal. And so we need to understand who we are. Our ability to get back to being a better version of ourselves through the grace of God is going to uh, be limited if we don't understand what that is. So lots of ideas out there, lots of things that are true about you. Nothing is more true than the fact that you are highly valued because you were made in the image of God. We are creatures. We're not in charge. But we are highly valued because we were made in the image of God. Heavenly Father, uh, in a world of much chaos and confusion and lots of debates and disagreements over who we are and, and what it means to be us and how free we are and all of those conversations, I pray that you would help us uh, to, to grow in our understanding of who we ultimately are, help us to, uh, to grow in our, in our awareness of the fact that we have value because we were made in your image. And I pray that this is a, uh, a, a truth or a reality that will be deeply smuggled into our hearts so that it can begin to shape and change us even now. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.